Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 25, the book of Romans, chapters 10 and 11. We're going to complete Romans chapter 10, uh, get started on chapter 11 today. Now when we left off, Paul's straw man had just asked a series of four questions. And these questions are in the form of objections to what Paul has been claiming about Israel, about the Messiah, and about salvation. And we find these four questions in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. So you can turn your Bibles there. It goes like this. But how can they call on someone if they haven't trusted in him? How can they trust in someone if they haven't heard about him? How can they hear about someone if no one is proclaiming him? And how can people proclaim him unless God sends them? As the Tanakh puts it, how beautiful are the feet of those announcing good news about good things. So there's four questions there. Now let's understand the purpose of Paul's straw man who asked these questions. Since Paul is not present in the city of Rome and instead is writing the congregation of Rome a letter. Paul's probably writing this letter in, from Corinth. And since Paul is a highly trained religious specialist who has been taught a very specific discipline and method at the Academy of Gamaliel on how you interpret scripture. He understands the need for debate as part of any intellectually honest dialogue about discerning biblical truth. But of course a letter is not a dialogue to people conversing. It's a one-way street. And a letter is by nature a monologue, one person making a series of statements. So in order to make it a debate, which by definition requires at least two different viewpoints, usually by two different people, Paul creates a non-existent debate opponent, a straw man. So it is Paul who puts the contrary words into the mouth of his make-believe opponent. Words that Paul sees as representative of how his learned Jewish opponents might respond to his teaching. Therefore, we have Paul make a statement, and then the straw man responds by opposing it. And then Paul refutes what the straw man says, and then he makes another statement. And again, the straw man opposes it. And Paul refutes the straw man's objection, and so on, and so on, and so on. And that's the way it works. Okay. Now, each time Paul quotes Scripture to make his case, meaning, of course, the Old Testament since a New Testament would not exist for another 150 years after Paul's death. But in the matter of this series of four opposing responses of the straw man, the straw man quotes scripture right back at Paul, 
when he says, how beautiful are the feet of those announcing good news about good things. Well, starting then in verse 16 of Romans chapter 10, Paul makes his defense against the four assertions of the straw man. Paul will continue using this back and forth method in his letter to portray a lively debate. He's not trying to fool the recipients of his letter. This is simply a well-known rabbinic style of his time. Now before we read Paul's response, I want to sum up the straw man's series of objections. It is this. First, Paul claims that the only way for Jews to be right with God is to call upon the name of Paul's Messiah. But, how can a Jew call upon Paul's Messiah if they don't trust in that Messiah as Messiah? Second, how can Jews be expected to trust in a Messiah they've never heard about? Third, how can Israel ever hear about a Messiah if no one proclaims this Messiah to them? And fourth, since a Messiah is by definition God sent, then one would expect that it would be God who would send a messenger to announce him. So if God hasn't assigned someone to that task, and there is no evidence or public knowledge that he did, then knowledge of a Messiah is impossible. Conclusion, if Israel really has rejected the true Messiah, then Israel can't be held accountable for it. It's God's fault. That's the straw man's position. Okay now, so Paul fires back now at the straw man. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. And we're going to start reading at verse 16. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, we're going to start reading at 14.14. Alright, well let's just continue. Let's go ahead now and read uh, starting at verse 16 of uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, Hebrews, Romans chapter 10. The problem is that they haven't all paid attention to the good news and obeyed it. For Isaiah says, Adonai, who has trusted what he has heard from us? So trust comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through a word proclaimed about the Messiah. But I say, isn't it rather that they didn't hear? No, they did hear. Their voice has gone out throughout the whole world, and their words to the ends of the earth. But I say, isn't it rather that, Isaiah, uh, that Israel didn't understand? I will provoke you to jealousy over a non-nation, over a nation void of understanding. I will make you angry. Moreover, Yeshayahu, Isaiah, boldly says, I was found by those who were not looking for me. I became known to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I held out my hands to a people who kept disobeying and contradicting. In verse 16, 
It says that Israel has heard the good news, but they haven't paid any attention to it. And to back up his statement, Paul uses Isaiah 53. Now in truth, what he quotes is a paraphrase, not an actual quote from Isaiah 53.1. Now nonetheless, as usual, the expectation is that his listeners will know the scripture passage and understand the context. So as good Bible students, we are going to read the passage from Isaiah to understand Paul's intent. Now be aware that what we are about to read directly relates to Messiah. Modern Judaism refutes, uh, refuses to accept Isaiah 53 as being about a person. Rather, the claim is that the suffering servant we're about to read, that's the subject of this chapter, is not the Messiah. The suffering servant, rather, according to modern Judaism, is the nation of Israel. So open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page 521. 521. Isaiah 53. Who believes our report? To whom is the arm of Adonai revealed? For before him he grew up like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He was not well formed or especially handsome. We saw him, but his appearance did not attract us. People despised and avoided him, a man of pains, well acquainted with illness, like someone from whom people turned their faces. He was despised. We did not value him. In fact, it was our diseases that he bore, our pains from which he suffered, yet we regarded him as punished, stricken, afflicted by God. But he was wounded because of our crimes, crushed because of our sins. The disciplining that makes us whole fell on him, and by his bruises we are healed. We all, like sheep, went astray. We turned, each one, to his own way. Yet Adonai laid on him the guilt of us all. Though mistreated, he was submissive. He did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to be slaughtered, like a sheep silent before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. After forcible arrest and sentencing, he was taken away, and none of his generation protested his being cut off from the land of the living for the crimes of my people. They deserve the punishment themselves. He was given a grave among the wicked. In his death, he was a rich man. Now, although he had done no violence, had said nothing deceptive, yet it pleased Adonai to crush him with illness to see if he would represent himself as a guilt offering. If he does, 
He will see his offspring, and he will prolong his days. And at his hand, Adonai's desire will be accomplished. After this ordeal, he will see satisfaction. By his knowing, pain and sacrifice, my righteous servant makes many righteous. It is for their sins that he suffers. Therefore I will assign him a share with the great. He will divide the spoil with the mighty. For having exposed himself to death and being counted among the sinners while actually bearing the sin of many and interceding for the offenders. Paul's rebuttal to this straw man is that the problem was not that Israel didn't know about the good news. That was not the issue. The good news was delivered to Israel, but they paid attention to it at all. Now this couldn't be more highlighted than the scriptures that Paul chose, Isaiah 53. How Judaism could deny that the subject of Isaiah 53 is the Messiah, no matter who that Messiah might be, and instead they claim that this chapter is a description of the nation of Israel? Well, it's just a mystery. But the mystery starts to dissipate when we understand that just as Christianity's goal for centuries has been to turn the Bible on its head and insist that Gentiles have replaced Hebrews as God's chosen people, no matter how emphatic and clear that the scriptures are to the contrary, Old and New Testament, so it is for Jews with Isaiah 53. No matter how obvious how self-evident this chapter in Isaiah might be to any non-partial reader that it's about, at the least, a person. A Messiah, not a nation. And how astonishingly detailed it gets about this person. And how it precisely fits the character and experiences of Yeshua of Nazareth, Jews since Paul's day have refused to accept it for what it is and have taken preposterous positions to deflect its reality. Why? Because just as institutional Christianity wants no Jew to be part of the Christian faith, so Jews don't want to hold any sort of similar view about a Messiah with Gentile Christians. And there is no length to which either side won't go to achieve their agendas. Distorting God's word has become a pawn in a game of one-upsmanship for both sides. It has disturbed me and energized me for the past two decades to do something about it. No matter how unpopular it might be from both sides of the fence. This situation is why Seed of Abraham Ministries exists. Well, in verse 17, Paul deals with an intermediate step between the good news being spoken and it being believed. That is, the message must also be heard. We need to think 
of the term heard, not in our English sense, in the Hebrew sense. The Hebrew word for hear or heard is shma. Shma. Shma means to listen, but to do what you hear. So faith in Yeshua comes by hearing the message of the gospel and what? Doing it. And hearing the gospel comes through Messiah's word brought to people by God's messengers. And who are God's messengers? His believers. Once again, this points up one of the primary tasks that all worshipers of Yeshua have. We're to tell others about the good news. So now in verse 18, the straw man responds to Paul's last comment. And he insists that part of the problem of Israel not accepting Yeshua is that Israel did not hear the message. To which Paul responds, No, they did hear. And he backs up his statement with a passage from Psalm 19. But as always, we get so much more from what Paul tends to impart when we do just what the Jews would have done. They remember the entire scripture passage, not just this short reference verse that the writer gives them. So, turn your Bibles to Psalm 19. That is on page 806, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. 806, Psalm 19. This is the Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God. The dome of the sky speaks the work of His hands. Every day it utters speech. Every night it reveals knowledge. Without speech, without a word, without their voices being heard, their line goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he places a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom from the bridal chamber, with delight like an athlete to run his race. It rises at one side of the sky, it circles around to the other side, nothing escapes its heat. The Torah of Adonai is perfect, restoring the inner person. The instruction of Adonai is sure, making wise the thoughtless. The precepts of Adonai are right, rejoicing the heart. The mitzvah, the commandment of Adonai is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Adonai is clean, enduring forever. The rulings of Adonai are true. They are righteous altogether, more desirable than gold, that much, than much fine gold, also sweeter than honey or the drippings from the honeycomb. Through them your servant is warned, and obeying them there is great reward. Who can discern unintentional sins? Cleanse me from hidden faults. Also keep your servant from presumptuous sins, so that they won't control me. Then I will be blameless and free of great offense. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of my heart be acceptable in your presence, Adonai, my rock and my Redeemer. 
Notice something important about Paul's choice of scripture. He is saying Israel did hear the gospel and they heard it through the awesome reality of what? God's creation. But even more, they also heard it more specifically from God's Torah. Therefore, they had the good news about a Messiah delivered to them by two entirely different avenues. By the heavens themselves and by means of Moses, the first mediator. Now, Israel is without excuse. And the straw man's accusation is once again proved wrong. Notice the final words of the final verse in this psalm. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of my heart be acceptable in your presence, Adonai, my rock and my redeemer. So here this psalm ends with speaking of God as the redeemer, which of course is the entire subject of the gospel. So it all ties together. However, the straw man still isn't convinced. So in verse 19, he concedes that perhaps Israel did hear. So the problem was they didn't understand what they heard. Paul responds only with scripture. Deuteronomy 32 and then Isaiah 65. Now it's interesting that the context of the Deuteronomy passage is the Song of Moses. Moses spoke this to the entire congregation of Israel a short time before he died. Here is some of his speech, just the pertinent section for us, which is Deuteronomy 32, 18-31. You ignored the rock who fathered you. You forgot God who gave you birth. Adonai saw and was filled with scorn at his sons and daughters' provocation. And he said, I'll hide my face from them and see what will become of them. For they are a perverse generation, untrustworthy children. They aroused my jealousy with a non-god and provoked me with their vanities. Well, I will arouse their jealousy with a non-people. I'll provoke them with a vile nation. For my anger has been fired up. It burns to the depths of Sheol, devouring the earth and its crops, kindling the very roots of the hills. I will reap disasters on them and use up all my arrows against them. Fatigued by hunger, they will be consumed by fever and bitter defeat. I'll send them the fangs of wild beasts and the poison of reptiles crawling in the dust. Outside, the sword makes parents childless. Inside, there is panic. As young men and girls alike are slain, sucklings and gray beards together. I considered putting an end to them, racing their memory from the human race. But I feared the insolence of their enemy, feared that their foes would mistakenly think, we ourselves accomplished this. I don't know, I had nothing to do with it. They are a nation without common sense, utter lacking utterly lacking in discernment. If they were wise, they could figure it out. They could understand their destiny. After all, how can one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to rout unless their rock sells them to their enemies? Unless Adonai hands them over. For our enemies have no rock like our rock. Even they can see that. 
See, this is a messianic passage. Notice how it begins speaking about the rock and ends with speaking about the rock. The rock, of course, is a biblical word that has to do with the Redeemer and with redemption. In the middle verses of this passage is Paul's central point. It's because, it is because Israel has rebelled that God will eventually go to a non-people, meaning not Hebrews, who are not Hebrews. Gentiles. That he will go to Gentiles with his message and these Gentiles who have historically not been God's elect will make Israel jealous because they now have the word from Israel's God. Well, Paul follows that up in Romans chapter 10, verses 20 and 21 with a passage that he takes from Isaiah 65. Now, the extended passage Paul is referring to reads like this. It's from Isaiah 65, verses 1 through 7. I made myself accessible to those who did not ask for me. I let myself be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation not called by my name. I spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who live in a way that is not good, who follow their own inclinations, a people who provoke me to my face all the time sacrificing in gardens, burning incense on bricks. They sit among the graves, they spend the night in caverns, they eat pig meat. Their pots hold soup made from disgusting things. They say, keep your distance, don't come near me because I'm holier than you. These are smoke in my nose, a fire that burns all day. See, it's written before me. I will not be silent until I repay them. I will repay them to the full for your own crimes and those of your ancestors together, says Adonai. They offered incense on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. First I will measure out their wages and then I will repay them in full. God is essentially saying, hey, my people knew. They just chose to be disobedient. They made themselves unclean by going into graveyards, by eating non-kosher food, pygmy. They told God not to come near them because they were holier than He. But the Lord says there's going to be a consequence for this disobedience. And the consequence is He will allow the Gentiles, a nation not called by His name, to know him too. Bottom line, Israel is guilty, guilty, guilty. They knew the Lord. They knew his word by any number of means. The Lord in his mercy nonetheless kept holding his arms and hands out to them, open to embracing Israel. They rejected him. He didn't reject them. This chapter closes with an unanswered question that I think any reasonable person would ask. If Israel is so guilty and God is so angry with them,
that he is within an eyelash, an eyelash of simply destroying them such that in response to their apostasy, he has made himself known to other people, to Gentiles, then what else can this mean but that God has closed the book on the Hebrews and he's moved on by taking an entire new group as his chosen, Gentile believers in Christ. And you know, if chapter 10 ended Paul's letter to the Romans, this would be a very reasonable conclusion for the church to make. But this doesn't end the letter. There is a lot more to go. So let's see what more Paul has to say on this devastating indictment against Israel and the Jewish people. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Now I don't mind saying that for a number of reasons, this is the chapter I've been yearning to teach you. In fact, this is why I elected to teach Romans in the first place. If all I had the time to teach in the entire book of Romans was one chapter, this would be the one. But fortunately, we have the time to go carefully, deeply, slowly into these inspired words. So now we have an extensive background for what Paul is about to say and we have no excuse to misunderstand his words. If over the centuries the church had only heard and believed Paul in Romans chapter 11 we would be a very different much more spiritually powerful an effective body today. Romans chapter 11. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1414. In that case, I say, isn't it that God has repudiated his people? Heaven forbid, for I myself am a son of Israel from the seed of Avraham, of the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin. God has not repudiated his people, whom he chose in advance. Or don't you know what the Tanakh says about Eliyahu, Elijah? He pleads with God against Israel. Adonai, they have killed your prophets, torn down your altars. I'm the only one left. Now they want to kill me too. But what is God's answer to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not knelt down to Baal. It's the same way in the present age. There is a remnant chosen by grace. Now if it's by grace, it is according, accordingly not based on legalistic works. If it were otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What follows is that Israel has not attained the goal for which she is striving. The ones chosen have obtained it, but the rest have been made stone-like, just as the Tanakh says. God has given them a spirit of dullness, eyes that do not see, ears that do not hear, right down to the present day. And David says, 
Let their dining table become for them a snare and a trap, a pitfall and a punishment. Let their eyes be darkened so that they can't see, with their backs bent continually. In that case I say, isn't it that they have stumbled with the result they have permanently fallen away? Heaven forbid! Quite the contrary. It is by means of their stumbling that deliverance has come to the Gentiles in order to provoke them to jealousy. Moreover, if their stumbling is bringing riches to the world, that is, if Israel being placed temporarily in a condition less favored than that of the Gentiles is bringing riches to the latter, how much greater riches will Israel in its fullness bring them? However, to those of you who are Gentiles, I say this. Since I myself am an emissary to the Gentiles, I make known the importance of my work in the hope that somehow I may provoke some of my own people to jealousy and save some of them. For if their casting Yeshua aside means reconciliation for the world, what will their accepting him mean? It will be life from the dead. Now if the challah offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole loaf. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, a wild olive, were grafted in among them and have become equal sharers in the rich root of the olive tree, then don't boast as if you're better than the branches. However, if you do boast, remember that you're not supporting the root, the root supporting you. So you'll say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. True, but so what? They were broken off because of their lack of trust. But you keep your place only because of your trust. So don't be arrogant. On the contrary, be terrified. Because if God did not spare the natural branches, he certainly won't spare you. So take a good look at God's kindness and his severity. On the one hand, severity towards those who fell off, but on the other hand, God's kindness towards you, provided you maintain yourself in that kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Moreover, the others, if they do not persist in their lack of trust, they will be grafted in, because God is able to graft them back in. For if you were cut out of what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back in to their own olive tree? For brothers, I want you to understand this truth which God formerly concealed but has now revealed so that you won't imagine that you know more than you actually do. It is that stoniness, to a degree, has come upon Israel until the Gentile world enters in its fullness. And that it is in this way that all Israel will be saved. As the Tanakh says, out of Zion will come the Redeemer. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now with respect to the good news, they're hated for your sake. But with respect to being chosen, they're loved for the patriarch's sake. For God's free gifts and his calling are irrevocable.
just as you yourselves were disobedient to God before, but have received mercy now because of Israel's disobedience, so also Israel has been disobedient now. So that by your showing them the same mercy that God has shown to you, they too may now receive God's mercy. For God has shut up all mankind together in disobedience in order that he might show mercy to all. Oh, the depth of the riches, the the wisdom and knowledge of God. How inscrutable are his judgments. How unsearchable are his ways. For who has known the mind of Adonai? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given him anything and made him pay it back? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I said at the end of chapter 10 that the large unanswered question was left lingering. But it only has the feel of lingering because of the eventual inclusions of chapter and verse markers. Since the opening words of chapter 11 ask that $64,000 question. And it is, in that case, isn't it that God has repudiated his people? The the King James Version asks the question this way, I say then hath God cast away his people? And in the much more widespread manner, it's translated in such uh, Bibles as the RSV and the NIV. It says, I say then, has God not rejected his people? Now, I have no bone to pick with any of these translations because they all put across the same sentiment. Which is, it is unfathomable to imagine that because Israel has had a long history of rebellious rebelliousness that God didn't finally, once and for all, walk away from them and move his election to somebody else. The good rabbi Paul says to this suggestion, heaven forbid. I'm going to reword this so there can be no mistake. Paul says God did not reject his people. Now proof of this fact is that Paul himself is an Israelite who is the seed of Abraham. Specifically, his heritage is from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, in the sense Paul is using the term seed of Abraham, it has a double meaning. It's a remez interpretation. That is, it has the plain sense meaning and it has a deeper meaning. On one level, it is to say that he is the spiritual seed of Abraham who is representative of that covenant promise of salvation. But on another level, it is to make the point that he is a flesh and blood Hebrew. He's not a converted Gentile. That is, his ancestry is not of a Gentile family who at some point in the past joined Israel. He is an actual blood descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, Paul is living proof God has not cast off his people. 
He is a hereditary member of Israel, but he is also part of the true Israel. What's true Israel? That's the spiritual seed. Thus, since Christ certainly would not have chosen a cast-off or a divinely rejected Jew, a rejected physical seed, to be his special envoy to the Gentile world, this in itself is tangible proof that Israel has not been cast off as God's chosen people. This is Paul's argument. Well, the core subject of this ongoing debate between Paul and his straw man is crucial for our theology and it affects believers in the most profound and the most practical way. Because here's the thing. If God indeed rejected his people, Israel, due to their unfaithfulness, then God has broken his promises to them. The consequences of God doing such a thing are so far-reaching that it's almost too dreadful to contemplate it. I mean, let's look at a few places in the Bible when God promised Israel that such a thing as him breaking his promises to them would never happen. 1 Samuel 12.22 For the sake of his great reputation, Adonai will not abandon his people because it has pleased Adonai to make you a people for himself. Psalm 94.14 For Adonai will not desert his people. He will not abandon his heritage. Jeremiah 33. 23 through 26. This word of, God, of Adonai came to Yermiao, Jeremiah. Haven't you noticed that these people are saying Adonai has rejected the two families he chose? Hence they despise my people and they no longer look at them as a nation. Here is what Adonai says. Well, if I've not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed laws for sky and earth, then I will also reject the descendants of Jacob and of my servant David, not choosing from his descendants people to rule over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will cause their captives to come back. I will show them compassion. I will again make the argument that I think Paul would have made had he ever envisioned a day in the future when the bulk of the Christian world would enthusiastically and naively declare that the Torah and the law of Moses are abolished and the Jewish people are abandoned as God's chosen people right along with the Old Testament. To put it another way, that God has taken away the covenants he made with the Hebrews and transferred them to the Gentiles. Now the argument I make is this. If God would ever make what seems to be an ironclad, unconditional promise to the Hebrews over the ages, one he repeats time and time again, that he will never forsake his people, he will never abandon his heritage Israel, and then he suddenly does, then why would Gentile Christians feel confident and secure that God would not find a reason to abandon us despite his many promises? Remember what Paul said back in Romans chapter 8 verses 35 through 39. 
will separate us from the love of Messiah? Trouble, hardship, persecution, hunger, poverty, danger, war. As the Tanakh puts it, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are super conquerors through the one who has loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor other heavenly rulers, neither what exists or what is coming, neither powers above nor powers below nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which comes to us through the Messiah Yeshua our Lord. Now before quoting that New Testament passage, I quoted to you very similar Old Testament promises to Israel that much of the church says God has backed away from. So why should we rely so heavily and sleep peacefully based on what Paul just said in Romans chapter 8? Can we be so arrogant, fellow Gentiles, as to believe that Gentile Christians are better people? Perhaps we have more merit than the Israelites had. Or that God's promise is to somehow secure a better promise to us than to them. Or that we could never be as rebellious or unfaithful as His former chosen. Or that we will have our salvation judged as a group of people and not as individuals. Why do I say that? Because as Christians are fond to assert as a foundational doctrine, we love to declare, God rejected the Jews as an entire group. Because the Jews, as an entire group, rejected their Messiah. And yet the Bible's clear, not all Jews as a group rejected Yeshua. We read in Acts of thousands upon thousands of Jews being the very first to accept the salvation afforded by Christ. So if we are going to assume that God accepts or rejects people for salvation based upon the majority action of the entire group that we belong to, then Gentiles as a group are in a pretty precarious position because certainly not all Gentiles have accepted Christ, have they? In fact, throughout history, the vast majority of Gentiles have rejected the Messiah. So what makes Gentiles, as a group, any less liable to being rejected by God than the Jews? If the standard is that however the majority of the group chooses to deal with Christ, that will decide the eternal fate of everybody in the group. You see the logic? Or rather the dislogic and the way it's been thought of all through these ages? Thanks be to God we can be confident of our salvation because God did not renege on His promise to His original elect, Israel, nor did He create a new and different elect the Gentile church. And we can be certain that the opportunity for salvation is not offered or held back according to what group we belong to. Jews or Gentiles. Or how others within our group, Jews or Gentiles, 
might choose. Now, I want to inject something here that, while it might sound trivial, even perhaps a bit confusing, it is important for us as worshipers of Yeshua to understand and to combat. And it is especially so for us living in this age when Messiah's return seems to be so very near. When speaking of believers in Christ, as opposed to followers of Judaism, the usual terminology is Christians on the one side, Jews on the other. And yet, many Jews are believers in Christ. Now, often I'll hear informed believers say, the Bible says that Jews were the first Christians. And yet, since the second century AD, the term Jewish Christian became an oxymoron. That is, Jewishness and Christianity were no longer seen as compatible within the same person. It would be like calling someone a Muslim Christian. Thus, even though we don't realize it, subconsciously what we mean and what we mentally picture when we use the terms Christians and Jews is a group of Gentiles who follow Christ versus the Jewish people in general. That's what, we, that's what we're thinking. It is just for the proof that despite many Christians denying it, Christianity is indeed seen in the eyes of the church itself and most definitely by Jews and other religions of the world as a religion of by and for Gentiles. And thus, should a Jewish person want to follow Christ, they want to become a Christian, they quite naturally have to give up their Jewishness and identify more as Gentiles. Since Christ followers, Christians, are seen by most of the world as Gentiles. Nothing, nothing has done more to help keep Jews from accepting their Messiah than having this perception. You see, the natural opposite of Jews is not Christians. The natural opposite of Jew is Gentile. The term Jews don't necessarily indicate a devotion to the religion of Judaism any more than the term Gentiles indicates a devotion to the religion of Christianity. And it never has. It is only because of the slanderous church doctrine created by some of the early church fathers, all Gentiles of course, that God has rejected and abandoned Israel, the Jews, and instead has elected and embraced Christians, Gentiles, according to the church, that this divisive mindset even exists. It is a wrong mindset that Paul has been concerned about and is fighting against it as a false theology. Trying to nip it in the bud back in his day before it could take firm root. You know, I think Paul would be aghast if he was suddenly resurrected and plopped down into the 21st century and saw it all in action. He'd probably take it as a personal failure. 
This entire book of Romans has Paul refuting a division of Jews from Christians, a division between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And now as we study Romans chapter 11, Paul is going to great lengths to help us understand what God's view is of Jews and Gentiles as regards redemption, especially of those from among those two groups who by faith have put their trust in the Messiah Yeshua. You know, it's ironic that for centuries Christians, Christianity has pictured a Jew who accepts Christ as one who naturally jumps from being a Jew to being a Gentile. In fact, the infamous Spanish Inquisition sought to ferret out those Jews who had not made that required jump. But now in modern times, a new false doctrine has arisen. Some among the Jewish Roots movement picture a Gentile who accepts Christ as one who, of course, jumps from being a Gentile to becoming a Jew. However, such a position is not biblically sound. As Paul says over and over again, in Christ there is no difference between Gentile and Jew. Because we are all human beings. When a Gentile Christian hears Paul say that, say, say that there's no difference, we think, good! Now that Jew is going to become more like us Gentiles. But when a Jewish believer hears it, when a Jewish believer hears Paul say that, he or she thinks, good, now that Gentile is going to become more like us Jews. So as we continue Romans 11, I want you to think very hard about the English terms that are used. What those terms mean to your mind. And then do the very best you can to shut down those mental filters that cause us to make assumptions that just aren't true. To conjure up mental pictures that give us false impressions of the biblical intent and reality. In many cases, Paul is not so much trying to give us new information. He's trying to get us to unlearn wrong assumptions in order to relearn right doctrine. However, as is evident in Paul's missionary journeys, unlearning is a much harder thing for people to do. And many can be passionately resistant to it. Unlearning also requires much explanation, definition of terms, and a lot of patience. So as we go through Romans 11, much explanation is going to be presented to you. We have much unlearning yet ahead of us. So be open and please be patient. God has a lot to teach us in this chapter. And we'll continue with Romans 11 next time.